Good day. This is Carl Wilder with In Conversation, and we're talking to artist Jane Dill. Jane Dill wrote a very interesting book called Quarantine Cocktails. It has a big sense of humor, and the cause that it benefits is very near and dear to my heart in that it helps to feed people who need food, which is becoming more and more of a crisis as we go through this pandemic that seems to be affecting everyone. She's been living and working in Mexico for I'm not quite sure how long, but uh, working as a calligrapher and an artist for as many years as I can count. And uh, I want to talk to her about the book a little bit. But first, Jane, tell me why you decided to help others with this book. Well, um, I did this book in April. It started out as just Facebook posts, essentially you know, one after another. And, and then I got this following and they kept saying, you got to make a book out of it. And I said, okay, whatever. And so I did. It was kind of an accidental book. And during this time, and I live in San Miguel de Allende, which is it's a very, very lovely, um, very touristy, you know, mm-hmm. town in, in Mexico. And, but there's a lot of very, very poor people who live out in the countryside. And, you know, they come in and they, they do things like they shine your shoes on the plaza or they sell balloons or they do this or that. And when the pandemic hit and we all had to lock down, all the, all those jobs went away, all of them. I mean, so everybody was setting up food banks and um, neighborhood stuff popped up where gringos jumped in and organized the whole thing, you know, several different neighborhoods. Um, so when I was thinking of doing this book, I said, well, I can't in all conscience, I, I just can't do it without somehow hooking in with a charity. So I picked um, one of the very established charities called Feed the Hungry. And I guess there's Feed the Hungry Africa and Feed the Hungry all over the world. Um, but this is a San Miguel one. And it was originated as a, um, a way to get school lunches to these little tiny schools out in the Campo, out in the countryside. And they found that they get maybe 40% more students if they feed them a hot lunch. You know, and sometimes that's their only meal of the day. And um, when they shut down all the schools, those kids didn't have any food. And it all of a sudden they had to pivot because the entire village didn't have any food. And the people, their parents weren't working because they used to shine the shoes in the in the plaza and there were no people in the plaza. So, you know, it just was this thing where they, um, but since they're such an amazing volunteer organization, they could just pivot the whole thing. And all of a sudden they found themselves feeding entire villages out in Mexico, you know, in the countryside. And I thought, well, and they needed a lot of money. So I figured I'd tie in with them. And it, it was great, you know, and people loved it. and. They said, oh, well, I'm going to buy three and give them away as, friend, as gifts, you know. So it was a win-win situation. I've already us. got my list ready of people in the U.S. that I'm going to send this to because it has an enormous sense of humor. Okay. And it, it it helps the people who need it, which, you know, is something that I have been trying to do my entire life as a chef. Now, there was, I saw a lot of your posts. They were shared by someone we both know, Alison Frazier. Um, and they had an enormous yep. sense of humor. My favorite was the one that is either made out of cocoa powder or half a chocolate bar, and it's called, I can't even pronounce it, Kobefi? <laughs> How do you say that, chocolate Kobefi? Oh, the, uh, it was a cocoa, hold on a second, I'll get it for you. That was actually the title, my husband actually thought that title up. Yeah, this was this was really funny, because I love frozen, co- I have three frozen coffee, drinks in this and um and they're so good because it was like 93 degrees out it was so hot this was april and may is the hottest time in our town and uh hold on let me get it it's it was a goof on kalua and kofefe you know the typo that trump made one time that he never lived down i gotta find it sorry that's all right. I actually, I know the recipe. It's either cocoa or half a chocolate bar. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Vodka, uh, Kahlua. Um, yeah. 
Let's see. Now I'm forgetting something. Vodka. There wasn't coconut water in that one. It's a, it's a, anyway, it's, it's a great drink and it's something that I look forward to serving for dessert. Oh, it's definitely a dessert drink. And, and the problem with, oh, here it is. It's a, a um, Coca Lua Covfefe. So it's a strong coffee, ice, vodka, Kahlua, half of a Magnum bar, or a Dove bar, and a sprinkle of nutmeg. And the problem was, um, I had no chocolate syrup in my house. I had no chocolate powder in my house. I had no um, creme de cacao in my house. You know, and so we were trying to figure it out. And oh, I didn't want to go to the big, big store because I'd have to get in the car and mask up and all that stuff. And there's a little tiny tienda, a little store right near the church where we are uh, down the street. And sure enough, they had frozen Magnum bars. And I went, perfect. <laughs> and I threw it in. And the really cool part is that the real, it's got that really nice chocolate, like a, like a uh, Dove bar. And in the blender, that got all crunched up. And so you get these little bites of chocolate. It was so good. And it just ended up being, you know, it's quarantine mixology. It's not real. I would get on these mixology sites and I just, you know, speaking another language, really. <laughs> well, you, you made it You made it simple and you made it fun. You also were inspired by some of the Prohibition era cocktails that you yeah, updated yeah. in your own way. And I find that fascinating as well, that it's both very modern and very historical at the same time. So it's about today that yeah. harkens to a previous era. Yeah, I, I just loved it. I mean, I just, I kind of midway through the 50 cocktails just sort of discovered the prohibition stuff. And, um, you know, the speakeasies. And, but the reasons why they, they always added lemon and sugar um, was basically to cover the taste of the bathtub gin. Apparently it was really hideous stuff. <laughs> and, uh, so that, you know, that helped cover the flavor and, you know, it worked. My, my favorite one was the Greyhound. I had no idea until I started doing history, uh, searching the history, and um, that the Greyhound was, uh, it's vodka and grapefruit juice. And it was called that because it was served in these little restaurants that were in every Greyhound bus station. And they were serving alcohol in the bus station and they had their their house drink was the Greyhound. And who knew, you know, yeah. it's fun. The food history that surrounds it is fascinating because you often think you know something and then when you go to research it, you find out there's a different reason behind it, like the Greyhound bus station. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now tell us, let's let's segue a little bit into your art. As I started looking at you and looking at the book, I started looking at a lot of your artwork. You are a calligrapher and you do gorgeous writing, but you also, apparently you've done all these paintings as well. I'm on your website looking at this and this and this and this, and it's remarkable what you're doing. Does living in Mexico give you a different palette or a different freedom? because it's not regimented artwork, it's big, bold, gorgeous, hello world, I'm here. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's funny because I never, you know, I was a, a calligrapher, a commercial calligrapher. Yeah. I made my living as a calligrapher. I bought a house, everything, you know. Now I was one of the top um, commercial calligraphers doing wine labels and book covers and um, a lot of products. Uh, and then that kind of fell apart during the recession in, in uh, 2008. It just stopped, you know. Um, so we came down here and I got into this gallery and, and just by accident, you know, I was doing their logo, actually. They had just opened. And the woman said, well, why aren't you in my gallery? And I went, I don't have any work. <laughs> and she said, well, someone's leaving and you have uh, 30 days. And I went, okay. So I just, I just got out and did a whole lot of mixed media. And I've been taking mixed media classes, but I didn't really become a fine artist until I moved here. You know, I was a commercial artist and dabbling a little bit, taking a few classes, but never really dove into it until I moved to Mexico and got into this gallery. So, and I'm still there. 
Interesting. <laughs> what what made you move to Mexico? I also left the U.S., but possibly for different reasons than you. Oh yeah, no, this is financial, definitely. Yeah, we're, we're like recession refugees. <laughs> There's a lot of us here, believe me. I spent, a, a, I spent mm-hmm. a year in the Dominican Republic working mm-hmm. in a resort when 2008 bottomed out in New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody kind of went somewhere. I mean, all of our friends split, you know, it was amazing. We were in Santa Fe. Yeah, New so. Mexico, which is a yeah. gorgeous place to live also. Yeah, and it was culturally, it was a really easy move, move for us. It's not like moving from New York City to Mexico. I mean, we were already speaking the language and eating the food and hearing the music. And, you know, we just piled everything in the car and brought the dog and off we went. <laughs> it was the best thing we ever did. Yeah. Truly. Does it make you feel... There's a lot going on in the U.S. and you reference it in your book in a humorous way. Does it make you feel more secure not to be living there right now? Yeah, definitely. Even though we do have COVID down here, and um, but not where we're living, it's very, very, very low. Though everybody's still kind of locked down and being careful. But I'm so glad we're not up there. It's just, I mean, you know, we watch CNN and we just want to pull our hair out. It's I can't imagine living up there right now. It's just frightening, you know. I do the same thing when I'm talking to people in the U.S. I'm in Germany. And I am so happy not to be where they are. And I left for yeah. a number of reasons, uh, economic, health, political, etc. And one of the things that's been happening to me as we go on is I'm looking at my Facebook memories where I was saying what I thought would happen in the US and every horrible thing I ever predicted is now coming true. Whoa. Oh God. <sighs> yeah, we had no idea. Well, we sort of did, but we didn't know it would be this bad. It's fascinating, actually. It's kind of like watching a car wreck, but it's very sad because, you know, we have friends and family that we can't really go see, like Allison, your friend. Yeah, and I can't go <laughs> see my mother. They were supposed to come down here in March, yeah. Oh, maybe I'll have to come to Mexico. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I love it. It's a real foodie town, Carl. It's I a know. really, a hugely foodie town, San Miguel. And um, outside of Mexico City, I mean, in fact, a lot of restaurants from Mexico City were budding chefs. Uh, they're all moving up here because they have kids and they want to have a better life, you know, up here. You, so it's fun. You're getting one of my favorite chefs from Mexico City or a branch of it. He will continue his restaurant there, but you will soon be getting a restaurant called Pato. Plato. Pato. P-A-T-O. It's only one thing every day. It's roast duck tacos. Oh, okay. I'll tell my friend she has a, a really good blog, and she's sort of a a real champion for the new chefs that are coming into town. So I'm going to write that down. Pato. P A T O. Yeah. P A T O. Got it. Now, if people hear this and 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 want the cocktails, which they kind of have to once they read about it and read about the good work the money is doing. Um, they go to Amazon or are there other places to buy it? I know in San Francisco it's at a gallery. Tell us how the world can buy this because... Um, the rest of the world, uh, San Miguel de Allende, I've got, I bought uh, like 200 copies of it. Um, I had it printed in Mexico City. Mainly because, I mean, everyone else is buying it on Amazon. It's totally available Amazon all over the world. You know, it, you could get it in Amazon Germany, Amazon UK, Canada, everywhere. Um, Amazon Mexico, however, brings it in as an import and you have to pay a lot of shipping and duty and all that stuff. It's only a $15 book and it was like $12.50 to get it down here. So instead I just had some printed and sold them that way. That, that allowed me to give you know, the, the first hundred books, I gave 50% to feed the hungry because Steve Bezos wasn't taking 40%. <laughs> so, um, but for the rest, for anyone listening, they can definitely get it at, um, on Amazon, whatever Amazon they're on. So, so and just, here I have maybe 20 books left. 
Mm-hmm. Wow. So Jeff Bezos takes 40% of every book sold. Oh yeah. Plus, plus the printing. Plus the printing. And the printing isn't very much, but he takes 40% on top of that. So yeah, you don't make very much. Unless you, you get a lot of volume. So well, unless you're Mary Trump. Uh, I, you're not Mary Trump, but we're going to get you a lot of volume. <laughs> That's okay. No, <laughs> it's know. good. It's, it's a worthy project. Everyone I have mentioned it to said, oh my God, I have to get this. Oh my God, I want this book. So it's it's going to provoke that reaction, I think, among many people that you wouldn't expect, even people who are not big cocktail drinkers. I never considered drinking cocktails yeah. until I started looking at the PDF of the book and thought, oh, that sounds good. Oh, that sounds really good. Oh, yeah. that's, oh, <laughs> I want that. You know, everything but the lavender and the coconut water I can have. Yeah, I did a lot with coconut water. But it's funny because we weren't really co- we weren't really cocktail drinkers either. That's the irony. I'm a, I'm a wine drinker. Uh, my husband drinks vodka and tequila. We, we had very, very few bottles of alcohol in the house. And we had just um, we had just moved to a new apartment and we downsized big time, which we wanted to do. We want to live kind of lean. And um, the thought of having to buy all this, you know, Aperol and, you know, it's like, so we borrowed from our friends, you know, we just literally, I went downstairs and said to my, my friend Brian, I said, um, do you have any like, uh, you know, Campari and uh, sweet vermouth? And he goes, darling, are you making a Negroni? And I went, yeah, <laughs> I'm, making a, I'm making a frozen Negroni. And it is a thing. There is frozen Negronis. I, I mean, I found so much. That's why in the book I put everything is completely copyright free, open to the public. Take it. Take all the recipes. I don't care because I took all the recipes. No, I did not all of them. I mean, I mean, I you took were, some. You created a lot of things because of the scarceness or the inability to have certain items. So there are yeah. substitutions, which I'm all about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had to learn to do that in the Dominican. Because if I wanted beef, the farmer would bring a cow into my kitchen. <laughs> Sounds like Mexico, yeah. No, but l- little stuff like I didn't have Campari. You know, I didn't, and so, but I, early on we bought all these bags of frozen, um, frozen berries. And there was one bag of frozen berries that I literally opened up and I picked out all of the little raspberries from the bag of frozen berries. And that was my, for my tequila sunrise, you know, I use that. I think I call it Raz something, and um, so I I did that separate, and then I put that on the bottom of the glass, and I poured the rest on, and it worked. You, know, <laughs> you just have to improvise. I mean, you know, improvising is really fun, and uh, we didn't have any little umbrellas, um, stuff like that. So I took flowers out of the garden downstairs, and we planted rosemary and we planted mint and so I grab some mint and I throw that in or I take rosemary and infuse it into simple syrup which I learned how to do online I mean I learned all this stuff it was you know I never knew about infusing jalapeno peppers into simple syrup but you can and uh, you know just and putting like garam marsala in it because I've got a ton of spices so I was kind of throwing them and chipotle powder powder and Things like that. Yeah. Well, I, I just had fun with it. That's what makes it so relatable. Um, all of us, I mean, in, in Berlin, we had a very, very, very short lockdown period and they started reopening up after about two weeks. Mm-hmm. But in many parts of the world, people are still hunkered down um, in many, many ways. And so you have to be creative. You have to say, what's in my refrigerator? What's in my freezer? Mm-hmm. I'm not running to the grocery yep. store for one lemon. You know, what can I do here? And I think that spirit comes through as we look yeah. at everything and the substitutions. Now you need to give me a substitution. I cannot have coconut. It's my only okay. deathly emergency. What should I use instead of coconut water for all of those? Uh-huh. Hmm, good question. Um, hmm. I would say you could do some kind of an iced tea, perhaps. I always uh-huh. have that. <laughs> Um, a soda water, maybe, you okay. know, something like that. 
I just threw it in because we we have a lot of it. We we make smoothies all the time, and now we're doing grain drinks. You know, someone saying, "Oh, are you you drinking cocktails every day?" I go, "No, I'm drinking green drinks. They're a little bit more healthy." Yeah, but cocktails are a lot of fun, and it's a great yeah, way to make everyone feel connected around the world. To have a virtual cocktail hour via Zoom,、uh, as it were, although it's coffee time、yeah. where you are and iced tea time where I am.、Um, but it's a great way to connect、yeah. with people, and we need that right now. Yeah, that's yeah. That's so, why we did it.、Uh, I put it up on Facebook, and and I have no idea how many people actually follow me. Until people started buying the book, and then they would oh, <laughs> thank you, and they would put you know they take a picture of themselves holding the book and they put it on Facebook, and I went really that old high school old friend of mine is following me how cool is that? And if I didn't get it up by like eight o'clock at night, I would get people emailing me saying Jane, where's where's the cocktail tonight? You know, so it was it was fun. That's a great.、Project. Oh, and by the way, there are、yeah. a lot of there are a lot of mocktails in the book. Yes. So if you don't drink it alcohol,、um, there's nine. And then I figured out I just flipped through it, and, and you could easily make maybe twenty five more of these into mocktails if you wanted to, very easily. So you know, do tell people that if you don't drink, it's perfectly it's a good book. Yeah, I don't have really any alcohol in the house other than red wine,、uh, but I did go out and get both vodka and Kahlua <laughs> because I, I have to have that. All right, so what do you want to leave people with? What do you want to close with? It can be anything you want them to know about you or a message to the world right now because people are listening to podcasts again as a way to connect. You have we don't know anywhere from fifty、yeah. to five thousand people. That will be hearing this in the next weeks. What do you want to say to them, and how do you want to connect with them? Oh boy,、um, hang in there. <laughs> you know, it's you just have to keep being optimistic. You have to keep saying we will get through this. You know, because we're still locked down pretty much. You know, the parks aren't even open yet.、Um, and I, you know, how do you sell a book during a pandemic? It's kind of A challenge, but、um, I just say to people, hey, you know, hang out with people that you love,、um, get in touch with your friends, just do a check-in with people.、Uh, we are going to get through this. We are going to get on the other side, and when we do get on the other side, it's definitely going to be different. And but it'll, in a lot of ways, be better. And we won't take things for granted. I used to. I used to take San Miguel for granted. It's like, oh God, we have to go to another party. Oh geez, you know. And now it's like, oh, I kill to go to a party because <laughs> we can't, you know. And just to never take anything for granted ever again because it can be gone in an instant. That's my message. All right, that's a wonderful、and、way to help each other out. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. That's a wonderful way to end the episode. Thank you very much, Miss Dill. For spending a little time with me、Thank、in Berlin, you, Germany today, and everybody get quarantine cocktails because it's it's just too much fun, and we all need a little fun. We need a little laughter, and some of us might even need a drink. <laughs> Have a wonderful day. Welcome to In Conversation with Carl Wilder and my very very special guest, Miss Annie Golden. Annie Golden had a very unique career, and it sounds like a fairy tale. She was discovered by Milos Forman playing in CBGB with the Shirts. She went on to work in Broadway plays, off-Broadway plays. Did a short stint in、um, uh, Little Shop of Horrors, among other things. Had、uh, work on Orange Is the New Black, Frasier, memorable roles, even on Miami Vice. But it wasn't a fairy tale. Annie worked so hard for every role, for every moment, and I met her when she was doing the Full Monty on Broadway. We met in Bryant Park. She was with her brother Mike and his baby boy, who was no longer a baby. We started talking, then we ran into each other again on Eighth Avenue. Then a few days later, she was headed to bowling. We ran into each other again, and a week after that, on the subway, 
I was headed down to CBGB to see her concert. She was headed down there to give her concert. And I realized the universe is telling me that I must have this woman in my life. We became friends. I'm going to tell you about a very special moment at CBGB that night. Annie did a song called White Picket Fence that blew me away because she was singing about the house I grew up in. She was singing about my life. She was singing about my mother's life. She was singing about my family. She didn't know this, and she didn't know how deeply impacted I was to hear a song about women who live in abusive households be championed and be sung by a strong, powerful woman. So I'm going to start by letting Annie talk, and she can say anything she likes. But I want to get your thoughts on that song and the impact it has on audiences. <laughs> uh, thank you, Carl. Um, yeah, uh, we met, remember that night we were on the subway and you had a bouquet? Yep. And I said, are those for me? And you <laughs> went, yes. And I was like, wait, what? Like, I thought you were going to date night. And you were like, no, I'm heading down to see your concert. These are for you. I thought that was so, you're right. The universe, the stars have a line for us to be friends. And um, our story is as interesting as the rest of my career is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, so uh, white white picket fence uh, uh, came about. It's uh, a golden Carrillo composition, which after the shirts, golden Carrillo came together in the '90s, and we have uh, three CDs out. And um, it was just subject matter I wanted to talk about. And um, Frank and I wrote it together. And then also. Um, you know, I we wrote Guns of the Bigoted, which is about um, gun control and um, about the, not really control, but the, the use of gun uh, gun violence, which is quite prevalent here in Brooklyn, where I live now, um, during the pandemic. And uh, yeah, so uh, that's how it all came about. Yeah, there you have written an awful lot of music, and much of it has a really deep impact on your audiences. My favorite from an emotional point of view is Clara Bow, uh, yes. because you eventually got the chance to be a silent film actress when you did Orange is the New Black and model yourself a little bit after someone who was very important to you, another Brooklyn girl who made it. Yes, Clara Bow. She was from Coney Island, Brooklyn, which is just a few stops away from where I live at the end of my subway line. So, um, yeah, I had read a book. Um, Frank already had that song pretty much uh, completed, and he had read the same book, the same biography. Um, and uh, so um, it was called uh, Running Wild, Clara Bow. And um, he played it for me, and we were amazed that we had read the same book and that we were moved by, uh, by her silent screen work and by her life as well. And so um, he gave it over to me and he wiped his uh, guitar solo and he let me put in a, a few more verses. And then he also um, put a bridge in there. So the song, I would like to think, um, even became more impactful uh, after we collaborated on it. It's, it's a fan favorite. Yeah, Clarabelle. Now, speaking of favorites, you know, too, that I find deeply impacting. For you, as a songwriter, and a, really a poet, because in many cases it begins with poetry for you, what was the most heartfelt for you to write? Which song? Yeah. Oh, um, well, uh, they're all heartfelt for me. I mean, if you, if you hear them, if you hear the language, uh, the words that I'm speaking, they're all heartfelt at the time. They're also all heartfelt, uh, depending on the topic. Uh, so I guess, I mean, um, I could die happy having written uh, White Picket Fence, so. Okay, well, we agree on that yeah. one. Now, it's kind, of, <laughs> it's kind of impossible to have a conversation with anyone in New York, or in this case, Brooklyn, without mentioning what's going on virus-wise and well, without mentioning what's going on in the theater right now. There isn't yeah. any. Tell me what you see as the future of the arts, because it's really kind of on hold there, although London is opening up theaters slowly. Um, well, I have to say, as 
as has been my career, I've been blessed all along, all along the way. So when the shutdown happened, I did a podcast for Broadway Podcast Network called Bleeding Love. And the way that came about was that um, we had already recorded the songs for this lush, gorgeous uh, Broadway musical. Uh, and to pitch it and shop it around, we had recorded uh, the compositions. So we were in the studio in, I think, uh, 20, 2014 or 2013, and we did the songs. And then, right as the shutdown happened, Broadway Podcast Network and Harris Duran, the, um, he, he ended up directing it, but he also was the lyricist. And uh, Arthur Franz Bacon wrote the music. They said, we'd like to record the dialogue and release it as a piece, as a podcast. So there was all, all the Foley sound effects. And when I heard the finished product, I was so proud of it. I felt like I was sitting in a theater. So that's Bleeding Love on Broad, uh, Broadway Podcast Network. So right out of the gate, I was working when others couldn't. I did that project. I also did something for Audible. I did my, my friend had written um, a play called uh, The Chambori International Hotel Butterfly Club about her journey uh, with um, her, uh, her trans uh, awareness and um, her trip with the Chambori International Hotel in Thailand where people go for their surgeries, uh, reassignment surgery. So that was a world debut. I did that on Audible. And Audible sent me a 35-pound trap case with equipment. So I immediately called my tech wizard nephew. You know, I'm an ancient. I'm a, I'm a dinosaur diva. This is not what I and, I, um, and he came over and he set up the equipment for me. So that when we began, we rehearsed for a week via Zoom. And then we went to Amazon uh, Chrome and uh, Audible, and we recorded. So my bedroom, in a heat wave, and I'm on the top floor, so the sun is beating down on the ceiling all day. No air conditioning, no fan going, because for sound quality. And my bedroom turned into a prison and a sweltering hot box of creativity. And so I recorded Chambori International Hotel, a world debut play uh, on Audible. And I've done something for the public theater. I did a new musical directed by Lee Silverman, who directed the, uh, the revival of Violet that we did on Broadway. And this is nothing new for you and I, Carl, because you said that we met during Full Monty. During Full Monty was 9-11. I so, remember. Yeah, so, so, up until that point, the show must go on. Broadway never was dark, except on its designated dark days. Broadway shut down for 9-11. That had never happened. In fact, I went to my sister's home to pick up her children on that day uh, from school, and her husband was going across the Brooklyn Bridge to pick her up. And I said to him, okay, you just have to be back by five because I have to leave for the theater. And my brother-in-law, who's, you know, a, a motorcycle club president, he said, there ain't no opera tonight, baby. There ain't going to be no opera. Everything's shut down. There's nothing going on. So that was the first time I dealt with it, with um, having a Broadway run and then no show and staying home. Uh, so this is nothing new to us, to you and I, Carl. So... Um, I think art will find a way. I mean, I've been uh, as busy as I was uh, before the shutdown, which I know is rare. I had an HBO pilot uh, air right when the shutdown happened. It was called Run, and I did it with Donald Gleason and Merritt Weaver. I, I was in that. Uh, my leading man was Stephen Henderson, and we did that on HBO, and that aired. So I was very, I was very present in a very high-profile way when everyone was shut, shut down and shut in, and all they could watch was, you know, their, their only outlet was television. I also did high maintenance. They repeated my high maintenance episode, which the writers of the creators of high maintenance had written that for me. And um, so I've just been really, really very fortunate. I've been doing 
podcasts. I've been doing interviews, talking a lot about my career, like it's over. Uh-huh. Monday on Fox TV is my new series that was created by Tate Taylor, who um, uh, adapted the book, The Help, and directed the film. And he also did the James Brown story with Chadwick Boseman as James Brown called Get On Up. So Tate is making his debut into television. It's called Filthy Rich. It's on Fox TV. And it's Kim Cattrall from Sex and the City, her return to series television. So I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm going strong. <laughs> well, you, you never take a break. And your energy is one of the things that I've always admired about you. It has never waned. You get on stage and you sparkle. And there's, there's oh, no way about it. You. That's what it means to be a star. But I'm going to throw a few names at you, people that you've worked with, okay. a couple of whom yes. I have known pretty well, a couple I haven't. But the first one is one who has been very, was very dear to me my entire life. And because of you, I sat across from her at the Algonquin one night, or not the Algonquin, the, uh, the round table. Uh, yes, it's Sardis. Sardis, thank you. Eartha Kitt. What was that like for you? Yes. I thought your yes. scene with her teaching you about sex was brilliant. Actually, um, I was so fortunate, um, of course, to have worked with her. But when she passed, it was the last live theater thing she had done. So all of those clips of her showing me um, how to be sexy. <laughs> I had the greatest teacher. Um, <laughs> Uh, all, that clip was the one that everyone used. Um, it was magnificent to be with her. Um, when I was in the Fulmonte, Kathleen Freeman was uh, struggling with cancer. And when I w- was in Mimi Ladoc with Eartha Kitt, Kit, she was also battling cancer. Uh, both ladies went into remission during the run, but ultimately had succumbed to that terrible disease. And it was... Um, the stories, I mean, you say the Algonquin, the yeah, round table, I mean, yeah. just sitting in a, dra- in a dressing room. And she had to share a dressing room. So they put a gorgeous drape, a cross, a tapestry, and a gorgeous uh, plush upholstered chair for her to sit at. So uh, my, mine and the other ladies, our mirrors were on one side of the room and hers was far in the corner. But let me tell you. She always pulled that curtain wide open because we were just gypsy girls together, putting our makeup on and getting ready to go on. So listening to great stories of her, and she's seen some stuff. I mean, what we're dealing with now, institutionalized racism, she saw some stuff and she enlightened us and she gave us some really good stories and from her own life. So that was, it was a thrill. It was a thrill to sit with you by my side and there's a kid across the table. Yeah, that was pretty special. Um, you yeah. you have been impacted by a lot of entertainers that you have seen over the years, from silent film actresses to others. Who do you think, one person named you recently as being a big influence on her, and it shocked me, um, also on a, a podcast, but who do you think that might be? You... Uh, that I influenced? Yeah, she said you were one of the greatest people to see live in concert. Oh, I don't know. Was it was it Cindy? Yes, it was. <laughs> Cindy Lauper. No, because when when she did that, oh, and here on my first name basis, Cindy. Um, uh, <clears throat> when she said that, everybody everybody contacted me and said, "Do you realize that?" Because anyone who's in my life knows uh, from the shirts days that um, when we were coming up, uh, her management uh, kept me apart from her. You know, it's this thing also, this institutionalized sexism where they try to pit women against women and uh, cat fights. And um, uh, her, her management at the time kept me away from her, kept me separate didn't want any comparisons, didn't want any sisterhood of any kind. And we kind of, over the years, we were able to dispel that. And then when she won her Tony for Kinky Boots and, you know, writing the, writing the music for Kinky Boots, then she was, and she was, you know, in my wheelhouse and she had done Three Penny Opera. And so, so we saw each other coming and going way after the CBGB's days. So it was, um, 
and we're still going. So, I mean, my friends were amazed at that too. So they were like, wow, you know what Cindy Lauper just said? And I was like, I had no idea. So that's great to know. Yeah, it is, it is kind of great to see people who've had uh, a different success than yours also admire you. And there's a lot of them. Um, I'll never forget yeah. going backstage with you to meet Patti LuPone. And she was so thrilled to see you. Yes. Yeah, she made a big deal. I was like, oh, who knew? I think I was actually, I was there to see Michael Cerberus. That's and, right, yeah. Um, I, was on, I was on his list. I think it was Sweeney Todd. And I was on his list. And then she heard that I that I was in the building, and she just went out to her balcony and you know yelled down, uh, "Send Annie up when when Michael's through with her." <laughs> well, I mean, it was it, it it's nice to see you get the recognition from your peers because you know you haven't gotten a Tony yet, but there is a role, one role that you've mentioned to me that I think you should have the chance to play, if not on Broadway. Paper Mill Playhouse, the Berlin Theater, London, wherever. And it's a kooky girl in New York who raises her nephew. What role do you think that could be? I think it's Jerry Herman's name. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That just really speaks to me. I mean, I'm the, you know, I'm now I'm the dowager. I'm, now I'm the, the, the spinster aunt. But I mean, I was always, people go, you know, Annie, do you have children? I'm like, no, I'm the oldest of six, so I always have had little ones in tow. And then when my siblings started having, and it's my my nephew Thomas's birthday today, as a matter of fact. And um, you know, and so then then it was the children when my sisters had to work and my days were free. If the kids were on a break, like Thanksgiving or uh, summer break, then they were mine. And I would just in this very apartment, we would have sleepovers. We would do we would do a bath night. We, they would cook. They would cook their chicken tenders at my stove, or they would uh, cook spaghetti, or we would make ice cream sundaes. So, Mame is really close to my heart, and um, I never do get the glamour rules, uh, but Mame certainly is one. So, if they could, um, if they would be doing a production of it. I would be more than happy to be called up and invited. Well, I'm going to spread the word on that. And you okay. gave us a natural transition into family. You have yeah. had, you're very close to your family. You have been wonderful with them in so many ways. I remember when your brother Mike was in the hospital and to get you away from the hospital bed, I'd have to take you to a show. It was the only way yeah. to get you out a little bit. It was a tough, tough time for you. And you lost another brother, yeah. uh, young, and your parents also young. So you sort of became the matriarch of your family, even though I still think of you as the baby sister. You told me you were not. Um, how, right. how has family impacted your life and how does it continue to impact your life? Well, I think it's a really good litmus test. It's a real reality check. I mean, I didn't, thank you, Lord, but I didn't need that much, uh, you know, uh, uh, heart, hardship, hardship and heartbreak in my life. But um, it's just a reality check to what matters. And um, we were, as you, as you know, we were scheduled to do this. And uh, I was getting reports from my other sisters that uh, my, my other sister was not doing well. And I had to go out there and see for myself. And she had invited me on the day that we were supposed to talk. And I said to you, I, I really just have to see for myself what's going on. And I was glad that I did it. And now I go out to see her every week. She's in New Jersey. So, um, I, and I don't have a car. So, uh, I go out there every Wednesday and I take the edge off of it for her. She feels less overwhelmed. Uh, she seems to be doing better. I don't want her to feel alone. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I'm the oldest sister and the parents died young and then uh, the boys followed suit. And so now it's just the sisters. So there's four of us. And then all the, all their children, yeah. all the nieces and nephews. I think I've met them all. The nieces and nephews are having, yes. <laughs> and they, they all have children. So it's a, it's a big family. So it's a, a real joy for me to, to have them. And also then I have my band and um, that's like another tribe and another family because I grew up with the shirts and 
Um, and I have my band, which is, you know, when my brother was my drummer and when he went down on his motorcycle, that's why I was sitting by his bedside because he, yeah. he came out of his coma and he suffered a traumatic brain injury. And then he came back after eight years. We didn't play for eight years, my band. And we waited for him and he came back. And then when ultimately, um, uh, when he did pass away due to complications from his injuries, um, after making his comeback at the cutting room, um, his son took over. The boy that you met in the park that day. The baby, yes. Yes. So he took he took he took my brother's play. I waited. I gave him a live CD of our songs. I knew he was accomplished, so young. And my backup singer and collaborator with compositions and arrangements is Lisa Burns, and her husband is Sal Maida, and he's my bass player. And Paul McKenzie, I got from uh, Artie LaMonica. Who is uh, the shirt? Who's from shirts? So um, you know we and their son Dylan Maida was my piano player. So it was Annie Golden family and friends. So um, we just kept going. And speaking of family, I have so so many people that I uh, that, that I take to heart. Um, when we lost Milos Foreman two Aprils ago, I was invited by his family to go to Prague and sing at his memorial at the Zoltan Palace in Prague. And it was all day long, Milos Forman Day. There were white tents set up around the perimeter of the, uh, you know, the grounds of the palace, which is like a national park. And there were white tents and they were showing Milos's films when he was, um, you know, the Young Turks and he was the new revolution uh, coming up in, uh, in Czechoslovakia and then his American films. And then inside the palace was um, set up a stage and the Prague Philharmonic played all the, the tunes, all the Mozart tunes, the Mozart compositions. And um, I sang Walking in Space and Good Morning Starshine with a Czechoslovakian band called Meteor. And then at the end of the night, I got up to sing with the Prague Philharmonic a gorgeous arrangement of Frank Mills. Wow, that must have yes. been a trip. And I know, I know how long these things take to get done and get mixed and get released because his sons Peter and Mate are are doing a documentary on their father, so they filmed everything. But I had my little micro recorder, Carl, <laughs> and I put it on my seat and I pressed record. So that I would have it so that I could assess for myself how it went. Because I was so full, I just wanted to bring it in the best possible way. But sometimes you get emotional. Anyway, it was phenomenal. And they filmed it. And they're working on a documentary about their father's work. And I reached out to Treat Williams. I reached out to Michael Douglas. I reached out to Woody Harrelson, I reached out to Edward Norton, and they all did um, video tributes that the twins, they're identical twins, Peter and Matty. Right. Um, they, uh, they showed the videos, and in English, they did Czechoslovakian, um, you know, the subtitles, and when Mueller spoke in Czech, they did English subtitles. So they're putting that together, and I can't, I can't wait for that will be tremendous. I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to ask you about your memories of one night. We're coming, amazingly enough, we don't have that many. We've got about 10 minutes left. But uh, when you came down to New yeah. Orleans and you went outside yeah. and were drinking a glass of Pinot Grigio, Santa Margarita, uh, you were surrounded by naked hippies watching the movie Hair. What did that feel like for you? Yes. That was pretty awesome. I mean, um, it's so funny that you should mention that because um, last summer I did a show uh, that was written for me by Joe Iconis uh, of uh, Be Bounty Kill, Hunter. Yeah. Fame. And yeah, Broadway Bounty Hunter. And I took off because I took off two nights. One was the uh, premiere of the finale episode of seven seasons of Orange is the New Black. So I had to be there because Norma made a cameo appearance. 
uh, in the finale episode. All of us did. They brought us all back. And then I took off because I was going to the Avalon Theater in Connecticut to its um, Art Deco Splendor, the Avalon Theater. And we all, um, we all uh, reunited. So we were all there after 40 years. We reunited, we watched the movie on a huge screen, and then we did a Q&A afterwards. It's very interesting because you say and sing very little in that movie, yet Milos Forman used you for all of these close-up and reaction shots. So we're yes. constantly looking at your face and I think that's one of the reasons that the audiences remember you so much from the movie and relate to you so much because your face was our face. You represent us in this wonderful kaleidoscope of music in the park. And it's, we become you and you become us. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. I mean, I, when I did watch the movie again, I realized that it was the precursor uh, to Norma Romano on Orange is the New Black. And Milos had told me that when he edited the film and then when he did, when I did not sing, my song did not make the cut oh. in the movie. He took me out to dinner. I've been, I've been very fortunate. You're not really treated this way, but I, I've always been very, very fortunate to be treated uh, so, uh, you know, lovingly and affectionately and respectfully. So my song didn't make it in the movie, although we shot it. And he did say, he said, you have so many close, you are my go-to, you are the heart and soul of the tribe. You tell the audience what to feel, how to feel, to be afraid, uh, to be joyful, uh, to be worried. He said, anytime I didn't think a scene worked, I would say to my editor, Lindsay Freeman, what do I have on Jeannie? Show me Jeannie. And you would always be listening. You would always be engaged. And I would be able to put a button on a scene and tell the audience where we were going by looking to Jeannie. So, so I, yeah, I was aware of that. And so back to your country club in New Orleans. Yeah, naked hippies, poolside, watching the movie. I remember you on your bicycle going to the blockbuster, sweaty, coming back. Oh, I got the movie and start running it. It was hysterical. And that was the first time I was in New Orleans right before Katrina. Mm -hmm. And then I got to go back to New Orleans immediately after Katrina. Oh, when I did I Love You, Philip Morris with Jim Carrey yeah. and McGregor. Yeah. So, and, and Filthy Rich, my new series, is filmed in New Orleans. You're kidding. Nope. <laughs> so everything comes around full circle in a sense. Full circle. And I play, don't be scared. I look really awful in my, in my premiere episode. I'm in the, I'm in the premiere. But I look really awful. But don't worry, because I said, Tate Taylor, you owe me big time for me being seen on screen like this. And he said, um, I'll make it up to you. I promise I'll make it up to you. And I'm in two other two other episodes where I look closer to myself. But uh, I play a swamp woman. I speak in tongues. I have that that Norland Cajun, you know, lilt. And um, I'm so excited. Well, there's nothing wrong with being ugly for a role. Um, yeah. Someone we both know, <laughs> Betty Buckley, did a stint on, uh, I think, season 